Thank you, Brother Courtney, for your prayer of supplication, all of it, particularly. I appreciate you praying that we will be bold witnesses, effective witnesses to our neighbors and our family members, co-workers, schoolmates, acquaintances who don't walk in the light of God's love, as far as we know, who are without Christ. That should be the number one burden on our hearts. And all of us need to be better witnesses, don't we? There's nobody here, I dare say, who would stand up and say, well, I'm a perfect witness. And I'm absolutely, completely effective in every avenue of witnessing and making disciples. There's room for improvement in all of us. Amen? And if there's an area that I constantly take before the Lord personally, it's right there. Lord, help me to be a better maker of disciples, to be an effective and, and, uh, and continual, consistent witness for the Lord. So thank you. And, and thank you for that prayer supplication. Well, I've got to get reacquainted with being back in the epistle of 1 John. I thoroughly enjoyed the time that I spent preaching in the Gospel of Matthew in preparation for the celebration of, of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know, after you're out of a book for a while, you have to kind of get back and kind of get back into the flow of it. And, and so we're picking up today in 1 John chapter 2. Um, and, and so you've been thoroughly inundated with 1 John, having had a lesson this morning in uh, 1 John chapter 3. And so uh, we'll see some of the parallel between what you just studied in, in Christian Growth Group and then what <clears throat> I'm preaching uh, this morning. And so we'll be looking in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. And, and before we do, let me just remind you, in the previous messages in 1 John chapter 1 and then going into chapter 2, John has been on a quest uh, mainly to expose and to expel imposters from the church. And might we, as 21st century Bible-believing conservative Christians and churches, be just as diligent to root out those who are superficial, who are plants by the devil, who are there primarily to disrupt the fellowship and to discourage the church. John was on a mission. And that was what it was, to expose and to expel from the midst of the fellowship those who were not true followers of Christ and pretended to be. On any given Sunday, we'll have people here who are not Christians. And I'm not talking about running off non-believers. I'm talking about people who pose. I think the young people used to call them posers. But people who pose, some of them long-standing members, some in leadership positions, posing as believers and followers of Christ, and yet, underneath, they're agents for the devil. So, John sets out a series of tests, beginning in chapter 1, the first of the tests to demonstrate the genuine, those who have genuine fellowship with God. You may recall in chapter 1, verse 7, he said, those who habitually walk in the light... Those who walk in the light of the, of, of the love of God, who walk as Christ walks. And so John said that's number one test to demonstrate the genuineness of person's fellowship with God. The second test came in verse 9 of chapter 1. You may recall, John said those who are in genuine fellowship with God are those who continually 
confess their sins. You see, the posers, the imposters, were basically going around arrogantly saying, we have achieved the esoteric knowledge that puts us high above the rest of you, and we are not sinners. We have no need to confess because we're perfect already through having acquired this superficial, or, yeah, superficial supernatural knowledge. And, and so therefore, John says, they're liars. If you say you have no sin, he says, you're a liar. So be careful how you stand up proudly and, 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 and piously claiming to not have sin. Or, so one of the other tests is continually confessing our sins. And then the third test we saw earlier in chapter 2, in verse 3, John said, those who are in genuine fellowship with God are those who are obeying God's commands. So there you have the first three tests in the text today that we'll look at. You'll see the fourth test, and we'll talk about that. And so, as we get ready to embark upon the, on the message, um, I've entitled the first section that we'll be looking at, which will be chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. I, I entitled it, Something Old, Something New. Something Old, Something New. John is almost writing in riddle form, as if to kind of keep you on your toes as you're writing. Now granted, it's all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely true. But he was kind of, you know, teasing us as we are reading this epistle. Something old, something new. It made me think about the old English po uh, poem, which became uh, old British tradition for the, for the wedding day, particularly for the bride. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Have you ever wondered, you know, people talk about that? You know, what is it? What is, and that's what came to my mind when I was thinking about this, this section of the scripture, something old, something new. And for the bride on her wedding day, traditionally, Whitney, I guess you did this, something old represents continuity and tradition. Something new would represent optimism for the future. Something borrowed talks about borrowed happiness and borrowed uh, uh, fulfillment. And then something blue, blue would represent purity and love and fidelity. But did you know there's another line to that? Something borrowed, I mean something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And a sixpence in your shoe. Did you get that, Whitney? <laughs> she said, what is a sixpence? I didn't say a six-pack. A sixpence, now I remind you, this is old English tradition here. A sixpence is an old British coin. They don't use it anymore, I understand. It's equal to the value of about six pennies. But, but the sixpence stuck in the bride's shoe would ensure uh, her good fortune and prosperity. So there you go, ladies. I hate that Haley's not here. Y'all pass that along to her, okay? So, now what does that have with the actual spiritual nature of the text? Not a thing. But that's all, you know, hey, you're probably wondering since I was wondering. But John did talk about something old. Something new. And, and look at the play on the words as he is unveiling this. Beginning in verse 7, he said, Brethren, so he's writing to the church, he's writing to Christians, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. In verse 8, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing, which thing is true in him, speaking of Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So let's just stop there for a second. Something old, something new. 
John is talking about a new commandment that is no longer new. You may recall when Jesus was addressing his disciples just prior to his own arrest and crucifixion, he was saying to his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. And so that was a new commandment. The disciples had never heard this. And Jesus is unveiling this. But now John is writing to first century Christians decades after Christ has been crucified, buried, and resurrected and ascended into heaven. And so he's saying here, uh, I write to you uh, no new commandment but an old commandment. Wait a minute. I just thought we said it was a new commandment at the time Jesus gave it. Now think in terms of pre-cross, post-cross. Before the cross, it was a new commandment. But now it's something that John says to his readers there at the church, Ephesus. He's saying, but it's an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. Now be careful there because John is not talking about creation. He's not talking the beginning of time. He's talking about when you were first born again. You've had this commandment, and they have. From the time that they were born again, brought into the fellowship of the church, John says, you've known this commandment, so it's not new to you, because it's an old commandment. Are you thoroughly confused now? Okay, you'll be even more confused as we move along. So because of that, John is saying that this commandment, which was the new commandment, was perfectly demonstrated in Christ on the cross. Jesus made, or he actually fulfilled the commandment he was teaching to his disciples. Because did you hear what he said? You shall love one another as I have loved you. How do we know Jesus loved us? How much do we know Jesus loved us? He died for us. He laid his life down. He didn't have to. And he told his disciples, now, this is the way I want you to love one another. Be willing to lay your life down if necessary. So this, this new commandment that is now owed to those new believers that are there in the church talks about this is an example of perfect love. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you remember when we went through the epistle of 1 Peter? In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21, Peter was saying... For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, that we may follow in his footsteps. He gave us an example, Peter says. For this Christ suffered as an example to us, that you may follow in his steps. So he's basically reiterating this commandment. We are to live as Christ, we are to love as Christ, and this is evidence of the fact that we are believers in Jesus Christ. So as we, we look here, you'll also notice, look at verse 8. I told you you'd be a little bit more confused. Because now he throws it back as a new commandment. It was, an old, it was a new commandment. Christ fulfilled, became an old commandment to the church because it was already in place. And everybody that came along after that and were born again, guess what? The moment that, they, that a believer professes faith in Jesus Christ, that commandment becomes new in the life of that believer. 
Ta-da! He's <laughs> looking at me like a mule looking at a new gate. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. That old commandment that, that, that the church has had with it since Christ was crucified and, and resurrected, every time a child, of, a, a sinner becomes a child of God, that old commandment becomes new in them. That's why new babes in Christ and new Christians are shot in the arm to the church. Because when they come out of the darkness of sin and into the light of God's love and they're born again and they're given new life, they were spiritually dead, but now they're brand new in Christ and they're alive in Christ, then all of a sudden that old commandment it becomes new in them. Because suddenly you see the love of Jesus beginning to be planted in their hearts and they grow in this and it's an inspiration to those of us who've been walking in God's love for decades maybe. So first of all, John says a new commandment that is old is now made new in the lives of the new Christians. And you'll appreciate what he's saying here better as we move on into the text and we talk about the spiritual levels of different believers. But first of all, John also presents what he considers to be undeniable evidence of obedience to his commandments or, or to this command. Undeniable evidence of obedience to this new or old commandment to love one another. As you look further with me, beginning in verse 9, he says, and this is the fourth test, by the way. Remember the first three tests I just walked with you through. The fourth test is unveiled in verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Look what John is saying. True believers live in the light of his love for one another. Verse 10. That's the fourth test. And look how that parallels what you were learning, what you were taught and you learned and, and, and incorporated into your hearts and minds in Christian growth group earlier this morning. Taken from 1 John chapter 3, where he's talking about that we as believers, we have a responsibility to love one another. And if you don't love a fellow Christian, dear friend, look, you learned this this morning in your Christian growth, you're committing a form of murder. To hate a fellow believer is like murdering. Whew. And even that, John says, you're like Cain was to Abel. That was pretty strong, wasn't it? And so, in 1 John chapter 3, you saw it in your Christian growth group lesson, John says, if you love the brothers and the sisters, you would be willing to lay your life down for them. So the fourth test, do you love the brothers and sisters? If you say that you love a brother or sister or the brothers and sisters and yet you hate them, let me tell you something. Hatred of God's children betrays one's spiritual blindness. 
There's no room in the fellowship of the church for people who claim to be followers of Christ and yet they harbor hate, resentment, and bitterness towards fellow Christians. There's no place for that. You've already betrayed the fact that you're not a true follower of Christ if that is a consistent. I don't mean there won't be times where people in the church won't upset you. That's sure. You know, there may be times you'll feel like biting the preacher's head off or whatever. But you know, just in a momentary situation of conflict, sure, you may not always have those wonderful, warm, ooey-gooey feelings of love towards but, but then to harbor that resentment, to harbor that bitterness, to, to have it seethed within you and you despise the sight of them and you're conjuring up images in your mind of bad things happening to that brother or sister. Listen, be careful, be careful because John says if you say that you're in the light and you hate your brother, you are walking in Darkness. Why was that important to the early church? Because you see the Gnostics and other heretical groups that came into the church, they claimed this superficial, this highly supernatural rather, um, uh, esoteric knowledge that had been imparted to them supposedly from a divine nature that set them apart from the rest of the church. Now remember, the early church in the first century primarily was made up well, of, of poor people, peasants, slaves and former slaves, uneducated. So here comes these elite, the elite, the, the heretics, and they're walking around like, oh, wait, 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 we can't associate with you all. You're, you know, you're the, you're the low life. We, we have arrived, and you're second class. And there was almost like they looked it down in, in, in a form of of hate, despising those who were lower and not a class and not as educated. What is your attitude towards former or towards fellow believers in the church? How do you see brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you find yourself tempted sometimes to kind of elevate yourself as if you may be a little bit better than some of the others? Maybe you make a little more money than others or you're better educated than others or maybe you, have, you know, uh, have, have privilege that the other members don't. Is there anything in you that would cause you to look down on other believers? John says be careful because you'll find yourself living a lie. Those who are not true Christians are walking in darkness and you see, John says here, he who says he is in the light. Where does that, what does that mean? The light being in fellowship with Christ. You go back to chapter 1, verse 7, you'll see where John brings this concept into play when he says, but if we walk in the light as he, Christ, is in the light. He says we have fellowship with one another. So if you claim to be in the light and yet your, your relationship with fellow believers betrays something else, if there's arrogance and condescending, unloving and selfish attitude towards fellow believers, John says, watch out. You see this imagery of, 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 of light and darkness played out all through John's gospel and here in 1 John and in the subsequent epistles as well. Because John realizes 
There are two domains. There are those who are walking in darkness, in sin, and separated from God, and those who are walking in the light of God's love. So ask yourself, before we move forward, how are you doing in practicing the new commandment, that is the old commandment, the commandment to love one another as Christ loves you? Is there any element of hate in your heart towards any other believer in Jesus Christ? You say, well, not here, preacher. But I know somebody that's a Christian, and they're over in another church, and I really don't like them. I hate their guts. Whoa, 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 hold on a second. Hold on a second. John is not exclusively talking about one geographical congregation. He's talking about the body of Christ. We are the love Christians. I don't care. What you know, denomination they're in. If they're true believers in Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to love them as Christ loves us. So be careful, be careful how you draw lines like that. Okay, something old, something new. Let's move on as John is, is, is talking about the fellowship, the body of Christ. And isn't the body of Christ wonderful? I love Romans 12, 5 where it talks about so we who are many in Christ form one body and, and all the members depend upon all the others. We all belong to one another. We're interconnected. We're one in Christ. And so something old, something new. Some are seasoned saints and some are brand new. And you'll see this as you look in verse 12. John says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for, for his name's sake. Verse 13, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And then he goes back through that sequence again. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the, the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, let me go back and let's just take that apart, okay? Because he's describing the typical church. The typical church. You know, as I think about Cornerstone, I, I, you know, I think about the, the chronological and the, 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 the racial, the physical, the spiritual diversity that exists within this small body of Christ. And you know what? That's a beautiful thing. I think it's a picture of heaven. You know, in heaven, there's going to be great diversity. There are going to be saints from all corners of the earth. Every culture, every language. Hallelujah. What a beautiful sight. And so when I see even the diversity within our relatively small congregation, I think, you know, that's a beautiful thing. But you see, there's also diversity spiritually in most typical churches. When we talk about where we are in terms of our spiritual maturity, and that's what John is getting to. But the first thing that John nails down in verse 12, let's go back and look at that again, is he, he's wanting to give us reassurance of our adoption into the Christian or into, into God's family. John is giving reassurance to the believers of their adoption into the, in the family of God. We all want to know that we belong to the family of God. Amen? That's why we love singing that old Gaither song. I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God, you know? And, and so in the family are those who are, look at verse 12, little children. Now it's important to understand that John uses one Greek word here, technia, which means those who are born ones. How many of y'all have ever been born? 
Some of you are a little sheepish. I, I was born. <laughs> I've heard all about the, the accounts of the day that I was born. I won't bore you with that. But I don't remember it. But I took my mother's word for it that I was born. Hey, I'm born again. How many of y'all are born again? Hey, now I got a little stronger choice. Y'all are more sure about you born again than the first time. Some of y'all are hats, but that's okay. We're not going to make distinctions, okay? But I write to you little children. This is a term that John loves to use. In fact, throughout this letter, John uses, I think, seven times. Little children. Because he's talking about everyone, all God's children. Everyone who has been born again. Who are true professors of faith in Jesus Christ, having confessed and repented of their sins, and have professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and turned their back on sin, and committed to follow Jesus Christ obediently as a disciple, you are born again. And, and, and therefore, when John is writing to little children, he's writing to all gods. Like back, back in chapter, in the same chapter, verse 1. You'll see where John, my little children, my little children. You know, that, that, that makes, John is such a, no wonder they call him the beloved disciple. He's just got that nature of love and he's kind of warm and comforting and, and, and reassuring and, and loving. And you can just sense that. And so he's, he's saying, I write to you little children, all of you as, as believers, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. That's what makes us little children. And you know, this is not a, a, a term of affection that was limited to John. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 13, verse 33, the Lord Jesus told his disciples. He called Peter and James and John and Matthew. He, he says, little children. Because he saw them as children of God. But not only that, Paul in Galatians in chapter 4, Paul, verse 19, referred to the Believers in Galatia. Little children. So if any of the pastors slip up and refer to you as little children, don't be offended. You know, we're just recognizing the beauty of the fact that you are in the family of God, you know? So, there we have it. You know, there are only two spiritual families in the Bible. Only two spiritual families. Number one, the family of God, little children. The other spiritual family, Jesus exposed in John chapter 8, verse 44, you may recall where he was constantly being badgered by the Pharisees, constantly being hounded by these religious snobs. And you know, and they were talking about, we're, children, we're, we're sons of Abraham. You can't talk to us. You can't chastise us. We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus just had a way of getting things across in a very subtle way. In verse 44 of John chapter 8, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's who your daddy is. So either a person is a, a child of God and that is a genuine, authentic follower of Jesus Christ and their life and their witness and their relationships bear witness to that. Or if they're not in the family of God, they're a child of the devil. Now don't go around to your lost friends and co-workers and say, hey, come here, child of the devil, daughter of the devil, get over here. 
Now, I, I didn't leave that to the Lord to deal with them. But John not only gives reassurance to the believers of their adoption into the family of God, but he also brings recognition that Christians vary in spiritual maturity. Just in the, in, in the biological family. You know, we, like I said, in the diversity of our congregation, I love the fact that we got babies in the nursery. And I've promised all the young ladies I would consult them before praying about repopulating the nursery again. But still, it's a wonderful sight to see those precious little babies. And then the little toddlers. And I just went by Sister Teresa's class. She and Jan teach. And she had all those little darlings lined up with the help of her daughter Whitney there. And just to teaching them. And that's why she comes into the sanctuary with that wonderful glow on her face. Having spent an hour with the preschoolers, you know. <laughs> Teresa's looking at me like, right. <laughs> you tried, preacher. <laughs> No, no, no. But I love our preschoolers. We have our team kids on Sunday afternoon. And I love the enthusiasm and the, and the innocence of our children and, and, and how precious they are. And I love our young people and our young adults and, and the life and vitality that they uh, bring. And I love our older adults. You know, uh, you've just fit in any category there as we go along. We're not going to call out any age. But, but those who are more mature and have walked with the Lord and have wisdom, oh, how precious it is to have that kind of growth development and diversity in the body of Christ. Aren't you glad that, that we're not all 21? Or we're not all, I know some of you are thinking, boy, oh, to be 21. <laughs> Aren't you glad that we're not all 41 or 61 or 81? Or, you know, what if we're a congregation of all of 91? That'd be my dad and a bunch of his peers. But there's diversity along the way. And, and, and so John is seasoned on that. Because beginning in verse 13, he's talking about fathers who have, who have known him, who has been from the beginning. He's talking about those who are mature Christians. And then also, he's talking about young men. And that could be young ladies as well. Those who are growing in the faith. But then I want you to focus down there at the end of verse 13. He says, I write to you little children. And now you're thinking, oh yeah, that's everybody that's a Christian, right? Just like you said. Well, that's not the same Greek word that John used earlier in verse 12. He uses the Greek word up there, verse 12, technia, born ones. But down here he uses a different Greek word, padia, which are young, immature children. So he's talking now to those who are newer in the faith. And, he's, and look what he's saying there. He says, I write to you little children, in spiritual children, if you will. Because you have known the Father. Basically, at this level, they know God. They know Jesus Christ. They, know that they, they understand the Gospel. They have received the Lord. They got salvation down. And they're on their way. So maybe at this point, they're baby food or pureed food or whatever, spiritually. Okay? So every church has them. You're saying, well, yeah, those are all the young people. Not necessarily. There's some young people who are more spiritually mature than some older adults, in my experiences. So we're not talking chronological age here. We're talking about people's maturity. But he says, I write to you, little children, those of you who are new in the faith, who are just now cutting your teeth on some of the basic things of the, of the Word of God. He says, you're in. Now keep growing, keep growing. Keep eating, keep growing, keep maturing. But then when he talks about also the young men, and this could be young, so it's not just, it's a generic. 
Those, of, those who are beyond the baby stage, beyond the spiritual toddler stage, but those, those of you who, are, who have grown and have been taught and have grasped Christian doctrine, he says, and, and, and if you look down there in, at the bottom of, of, at the end of verse 14, he says, I've written to you young men because you are strong. How are they strong? Look what he says. The word of God abides in you. You have the word in your heart. You're not brand new. You're not just at the John 3.16 point. You have begun to learn the basic doctrines and the tenets of the Christian faith. And you're strong. How does he know that? Because he says you're strong enough to do battle with the devil. Look what he says at the end of verse 14. And you have overcome the wicked one. How do you overcome the wicked one? The devil is the deceiver. He's a liar. How do you overcome him? With the truth. He says I've watched you. You have, you have soaked in what you've been taught. You've learned the doctrines of the faith. You understand the distinctions that set you apart from the rest of the world. And when the devil is trying to offer you these deceptive schemes to lead you astray, you're saying, no way, Jose. That's a lie. Back off, devil. And John says, right on, boys and girls. You're strong. Keep growing. Because there's a stage even further ahead of you. And there's where he's talking about the fathers, and I would say mothers. Those who are more mature he says, because, look what he says there in verse 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Oh, you know his word. You've grown up with his word. You, are, you, you have cut your teeth on the Bible. You have, you have grasped the basic doctrines when you were a young you know, spiritually growing young man, young woman, you did devil battle with the devil and overcame him. You've maintained your witness. But he says, you're even beyond that. You're experienced in walking with the Lord. How do, you, how do you know the Lord? How do you develop a close intimacy with God? Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to walk with Him. You've got to talk with Him. And I don't mean for just a year or two. I'm talking about decades Praying, reading the word of God, doing battle with the devil and overcoming the world and standing as a witness and making disciples and planting your life in the, in the word of God and in the things of God. Let me tell you something. It's a wonderful thing to be in the midst of Christians who know God. And his very character exudes from them their personality, their priorities, their relationships. And I thank God for people like that. I look back over my childhood and I think about growing up in that little country church up there in the far reaches of North Carolina right on the verge of going into Virginia. And the vast majority of the elders in our community, the older people, my grandparents and, and now you know, my parents, most of them were uneducated simply because they didn't have school to take them beyond say the seventh grade or so rarely did anybody get a high school degree it's even rare to have the privilege to go to college but oh to sit and talk and 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 experience these men and women who have been walking with god they faced the fires of trials and temptations and hardship. They knew the word of God. 
They didn't know the encyclopedia. They didn't know all the, 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 the intellectual facts that so many people know. But I would guarantee you, when it came to the Word of God, they knew God's Word. But even more important than that, you sit with them long enough. You talk to them long enough. And you understand that the priority of their life is Christ the Lord. They know God. They could tell you some things that would help you go along. So then when I think about these three categories of Christians and their spiritual maturity, the little children are the tasters. They're tasting it. But yeah, like children do. You know, you try to convince them that that gooey stuff that Gerber's puts out, you know, green peas is good, you know, and say, mmm, mommy takes it back. Mmm, this is good. <laughs> you need it. <laughs> and they're tasting this and tasting that. Those are the tasters, and we need to continually feed them the good, healthy baby food of the Word so that they can grow. But then there are those who are the, the, the testers. These are the young men and young women, those, those who have grown and matured and they're down, got doctrine solid, and they're, they're standing firm in Christian doctrine. They, they're the testers. They've learned it. Now they're going out into the world and they're testing it. All the tragedy of the contemporary church today. We bring up a generation of, of pampered, spoiled, entertained Young people, we call it youth ministry. And they just get the basic baby food. And we don't teach them the doctrines. And we don't drill them with discipline on the Word of God. And they leave home and they go off to college to some secular university and some pious, ungodly, atheistic professor tears them apart. And if he doesn't, then the rest of the secular crowd with all their social schemes and alternatives, we'll do the rest of the job. Oh, God, help us for not equipping our young people better to be able to stand strong against the wiles of the devil and to be grounded in the Word of God and the doctrine of the church and the Christian faith and to be able to go out into the world and to do battle with the devil at all points and to come back to the church and say, Praise God, I'm still standing. To me, that's a measure of a successful youth ministry and young adult ministry. And then those who are the teachers, the mature Christians. Oh, listen, saints, don't ever stop teaching. You say, well, I'm not a Christian growth group teacher. I'm not a Bible teacher. Uh, yeah, I'm not supposed to teach. Oh, listen, if you know Him... And you've been walking with him and he is a part of your life and you are mature in the faith. I guarantee you there's someone in proximity of your life that you can influence and teach them. Teach them what you know. Praise God. Well, we need to go ahead and as I think about those levels of growth, maturity, I think about the fourth book of Dr. Avery Willis's Master Life Discipleship Tool. And he plots out that growth chart. And he shows how one level helps the level below it. There's always some Christian who is a little more immature than you. 
that you can help and encourage along the way. And then there's somebody that's just ahead of you. That if you'll just let them, they'll help you. They'll encourage you. We're all in this together. Does that make sense to y'all? Can somebody say amen? amen? Yes! We have an investment in each other. Well, we need to move on now. Something old, something new. Summer season, some brand new. I couldn't resist. Some are worldly, some are worldly, some are true. Let's look at the last two verses, three verses, verse 15 through 17. John goes on to say, Do not love this world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. That's present tense, by the way. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Again, John's, one of God, John's objective is to weed out imposters. He exposes these imposters by their love for the world. And by the world, I'm not talking about the ecosystem of the globe. And I love the earth. It beats living on Jupiter or Mercury. Shoot. <laughs> you think it's been cold this winter? Try spending a, a winter on Jupiter. Whew. But anyway, uh, he's not talking about those who you know, love the world. He, he's talking about those who love this, this false spiritual system that is evil. And, and built on pride and greed and self-centeredness. Oh, listen, he's talking about these imposters that were in love with this anti-God world system. John's polite. Remember, he's a beloved disciple. <laughs> I like old James. Remember the sons of thunder? And I agree. Well, this is not that, that James, but still, I think about James. I, I like James in his epistle. How he addresses that in James chapter 4, verse 4. This is James now. He's writing to the same, those who were calling themselves Christians and they loved the world system. James says in James 4, verse 4, adulterers, adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There you go. Pull no punches. And John says basically the same thing. If you find yourself in love with the world system, and that's the evil, ungodly, sin-based, immoral system of the world. Listen, the world is Satan's domain. The scripture tells us that. And that's why things are so horrible in the world in general, morally, ethically speaking. Because the devil's having a heyday. And the imposters, the Gnostics and the other heretics, oh, they would give attention to the spiritual matters, but they certainly love the things of the world. Kind of reminds you of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus says, you bunch of hypocrites, you blind guides, you whitewashed tombs. How dare you? You love the things of the world. You don't love God. He says, you can't serve mammon and serve God. See, they were caught up in materialism and the, the, the pride of life and, and all of that. It reminds me somewhat of the prosperity gospel. You know the health and wealth 
preachers, and there's too many of them out there now. Oh, and how many thousands and thousands of people have fallen for this health and wealth, prosperity, gospel that talks more about self-esteem and self-fulfillment and self-centeredness and self-satisfaction. You, you see what it's about? It's about self. You hear him say, oh, brothers and sisters, God wants you to be wealthy. He doesn't want you to drive around in that ragged Honda. He wants you to be riding in a Mercedes. Listen, uh, you need to be wealthy. You need to have all these gold rings like we've got and diamonds and live in mansions like we do. And if something, if that's not the case, you need to send us more money so we can pray more for you so that you can share. Oh, listen, it's a, they're more concerned and, and invested in the world than they are in heaven. And John says, watch out if you find yourself. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, where's your preoccupation? What preoccupies your mind and your heart most? Is it godliness? The presence of the Lord? The Word of God? Being a part of the fellowship of the church? The kingdom of God? sacrificially given to advance the kingdom of God or to invest in the lives of others for the, for the glory of God? Or is it about paychecks, investments, retirement plans, house, furniture, clothes, cars? Watch out. Watch out, John says. Ask yourself, where is your heart? He identifies areas that Christians... If they're not careful, are vulnerable. In verse 16 it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, which is that old Adamic fallen nature, newsflash, I don't care how mature you are in Christ, you still got that with you, that old flesh nature. It's not into godliness, it's not into spiritual you know, growth, it's not into praising God, it's not into glorifying the Lord. It's about all kinds of wicked, immoral, ungodly. It's still in you. And the devil knows the buttons to push and the world knows the strings to pull to cause you to fall into temptation to the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The eyes are the window to the soul, to the mind, to the heart. And so many times our eyes will be searching for what our heart desires. And if you desire worldly things and material things and ungodly things, and guess what? Your eyes will sooner or later find it. They'll track it. And once you lock in on something, guess what? That's what your heart's focused on. That's what your mind's focused on. I won't. I won't. I won't. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Oh, Pride goes before the fall. Amen? And when we're puffed up, as were the Gnostics and the other heretics that had infiltrated the church, when old pride gets in the way, ladies and gentlemen, guess who's on the throne? It's not God. It's not Christ. It's you. Look at me, you're saying. I like something. I just want more people to love me and to worship me and think highly of me and oh I got to do this and dress like this and live here and have this kind of bank account oh because oh I'm so proud 
And sometimes God's people will yield to the sinful lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride. You know, be careful. Be careful. In verse 17, John tells us why. Don't get too invested in the world. Don't fall too much in love with the things of the world. Because you know where this world's headed. He tells you, verse 17, and the world is passing away. You know, in the midst of all the science and physics and all these wonderful breakthroughs in medicine and technology and people are thinking, oh yes, just like they thought back at the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century, oh, information and technology is going to bring the utopia. The 20th, 20th century will be the century of perfection. We won't have to work and labor or struggle. I'll have all these machines doing everything for us and we'll be leisurely enjoying life and everything will be, diseases will be dispelled and, and war will be gone and there will be no more. And then World War I, World War II and people were knocked down on their faces and said, what's going on? They saw the atrocities of the Third Reich in Germany, Mussolini, Stalin in, in Russia. And they said, wait a minute. We're supposed to be so much more advanced. We're supposed to be so much more knowledgeable. We're supposed to be so superior. And look at us. Why is that? Because the world, John says, is passing away. If you invest in your life in this world, in the things of this world, ladies and gentlemen, it's the equivalent of buy, investing your life savings to buy a ticket on the Titanic. And if you want to see the grisly end, you may recall from our sermons in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. You want to know where all the gold you got? The big houses you have and fancy furniture you got and that fancy car. Boom! 2 Peter 3.10. Biggest nuclear explosion creation's ever seen. God's going to hit the timer and you're talking about a cataclysmic Atomic eruption, all of matter, not under the hand of God, including all your possessions, going to be instantly dissolved. All the universities and all the libraries and all the statues and all the monuments of skyscrapers and all the kingdoms of the earth are going to be absolutely destroyed by fire. So says the Word of God. And John says, huh, don't love the world. The children of God love God. And how do we know that? Because they do the will of God. And why is that a big deal? Look at the end of verse 17. He says, and the world is right now passing away and one day will explode in all the lust of it. That would take care of Las Vegas and Hollywood and Wall Street. But he just very calmly inserts. But he who does the will of God, what? Abides forever. I just happen to believe, ladies and gentlemen, one day you and I will have a grandstand seat. In that millennial time period when Christ is ruling, and we're about ready to step over into the absolute eternity of the new heaven and the new earth and live in the actual presence of God 
We're going to see something that will just shake you to the foundation. We'll be safely tucked away by God in our spectator seats. And He'll show us the whole universe. All the galaxies. Maybe even have a magnifying glass on the earth. He'll say a word. And you'll see it begin to blaze. Boom! And matter dissolve. Cast out to the outer limits. Gone forever. I don't know about you. But I'll be glad I had a ticket for that event. Safely. In the bosom of the Lord. How about you? Who, who do you love? Or better still, who do you love? True believers. Are those who are abiding by the new commandment that is the old commandment that is the new commandment. That we love one another. We're walking in the light of the love of God. We are constantly growing. Though some are babies. Some are mature. And we're the ones who are not in love with the world. And it shows in the way that we live our lives. Do you have the confidence in knowing that you are in the family of God? When you lay your head on the pillow tonight, if this is the last day that you spend, and the last night that you spend on this side of eternity, do you have the assurance that when you open your eyes, you open your eyes as a child of God in the glory of heaven. See, you don't want to go to bed without that assurance because you might not wake up like that. You don't want to leave this building today without that assurance because there's no guarantee that you're going to make it home or that I'm going to make it home. I encourage you with something this absolutely important. You need to know that you know that you know. I am a child of God.